Section three of the Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alana Jordan in the great state of Missouri. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part one, section two. Part one. Of the propriety of action consisting of three sections. Section two of the degrees of different passions which are consistent with propriety. Introduction The propriety of every passion excited by objects peculiarly related to ourselves, the pitch which the spectator can go along with, must lie, it is evident, in a certain mediocrity. If the passion is too high, or if it is too low, he cannot enter into it. Grief and resentment for private misfortunes and injuries may easily, for example, be too high, and in the greater part of mankind they are so. They may likewise, though this more rarely happens, be too low. We denominate the excess, weakness, and fury, and we call the defect stupidity, insensibility, and want of spirit. We can enter into neither of them, but are astonished and confounded to see them. This mediocrity, however, in which the point of propriety consists, is different in different passions. It is high in some, and low in others. There are some passions which it is indecent to express very strongly, even upon those occasions in which it is acknowledged that we cannot avoid feeling them in the highest degree. And there are others of which the strongest expressions are upon many occasions extremely graceful, even though the passions themselves do not, perhaps, arise so necessarily. The first are those passions with which, for certain reasons, there is little or no sympathy. The second are those with which, for other reasons, there is the greatest. And if we consider all the different passions of human nature, we shall find that they are regarded as decent or indecent, just in proportion as mankind are, more or less, disposed to sympathize with them. Chapter 1. Of the Passions Which Take Their Origin From the Body. 1. It is indecent to express any strong degree of those passions which arise from a certain situation or disposition of the body, because the company, not being in the same disposition, cannot be expected to sympathize with them. Violet hunger, for example, though upon many occasions not only natural but unavoidable, is always indecent, and to eat voraciously is universally regarded as a piece of ill manners. There is, however, some degree of sympathy even with hunger. It is agreeable to see our companions eat with a good appetite, and all expressions of loathing are offensive. The disposition of body, which is habitual to man in health, makes his stomach easily keep time, if I may be allowed so coarse an expression, with the one and not with the other. We can sympathize with the distress which excessive hunger occasions when we read the description of it in a journal of a siege or of a sea voyage. 
we imagine ourselves in the situation of the sufferers, and thence readily conceive the grief, the fear, and consternation, which must necessarily distract them. We feel ourselves some degree of those passions, and therefore sympathize with them. But as we do not grow hungry by reading the description, we cannot properly, even in this case, be said to sympathize with their hunger. It is the same case with the passion by which nature unites the two sexes. Though naturally the most furious of all the passions, all strong expressions of it, are upon every occasion indecent. Even between persons in whom its most complete indulgence is acknowledged by all laws, both human and divine, to be perfectly innocent. There seems, however, to be some degree of sympathy even with this passion. To talk to a woman as we would to a man is improper. It is expected that their company should inspire us with more gaiety, more pleasantry, and more attention. And an entire insensibility to the fair sex renders a man contemptible in some measure, even to the men. Such is our aversion for all the appetites which take their origin from the body. All strong expressions of them are loathsome and disagreeable. According to some ancient philosophers, these are the passions which we share in common with the brutes, and which, having no connection with the characteristical qualities of human nature, are upon that account beneath its dignity. But there are many other passions which we share in common with the brutes, such as resentment, natural affection, even gratitude, which do not, upon that account, appear to be so brutal. The true cause of the peculiar disgust which we conceive for the appetites of the body when we see them in other men is that we cannot enter into them. To the person himself who feels them, as soon as they are gratified, the object that excited them ceases to be agreeable. Even its present often becomes offensive to him. He looks round to no purpose for the charm which transported him the moment before. And he can now as little enter into his own passion as another person. When we have dined, we ordered the covers to be removed, and we should treat in the same manner the objects of the most ardent and passionate desires. If they were the objects of no other passions but those which take the origin from the body. In the command of those appetites of the body consists that virtue which is properly called temperance. To restrain them within those bounds which regard to health and fortune prescribes is the part of prudence. But to confine them within those limits which grace, which propriety, which delicacy and modesty require is the office of temperance. 2. It is for the same reason that to cry out with bodily pain, how intolerable soever, always appears unmanly and unbecoming. There is, however, a good deal of sympathy even with bodily pain. If, as has already been observed, I see a stroke aimed and just ready to fall upon the leg or arm of another person, I naturally shrink and draw back my own leg or my own arm, and when it does fall, I feel it in some measure, and am hurt by it as well as the sufferer. My hurt, however, is no doubt excessively slight and upon that account, if he makes any violent outcry, as I cannot go along with him, I never fail to despise him. 
and this is the case of all the passions which take their origin from the body they excite either no sympathy at all or such a degree of it as is altogether disproportioned to the violence of what is felt by the sufferer it is quite otherwise with those passions which take their origin from the imagination the frame of my body can be but little affected by the alterations which are brought about upon that of my companion but my imagination is more ductile and more readily assumes if i may say so the shape and configuration of the imaginations of those with whom i am familiar a disappointment in love or ambition will upon this account call forth more sympathy than the greatest bodily evil those passions arise altogether from the imagination a person who has lost his whole fortune if he is in health feels nothing in his body what he suffers is from the imagination only which represents to him the loss of his dignity neglect from his friends contempt from his enemies dependence want and misery coming fast upon him and we sympathize with him more strongly upon this account because our imaginations can more readily mould themselves upon his imagination than our bodies can mould themselves upon his body the loss of a leg may generally be regarded as a more real calamity than the loss of a mistress it would be a ridiculous tragedy however of which the catastrophe was to turn upon a loss of that kind a misfortune of the other kind how frivolous soever it may appear to be has given occasion to many a fine one nothing is so soon forgot as pain the moment it is gone the whole agony of it is over and the thought of it can no longer give us any sort of disturbance we ourselves cannot then enter into anxiety and anguish which we had before conceived an unguarded word from a friend will occasion a more durable uneasiness the agony which this creates is by no means over with the word what at first disturbs us is not the object of the senses but the idea of the imagination as it is an idea therefore which occasions our uneasiness till time and other accidents have in some measure effaced it from our memory the imagination continues to fret and rankle within from the thought of it pain never calls forth any very lively sympathy unless it is accompanied with danger we sympathize with the fear though not with the agony of the sufferer fear however is a passion derived altogether from the imagination which represents with an uncertainty and fluctuation that increases our anxiety not what we really feel but what we may hereafter possibly suffer the gout or the toothache though exquisitely painful excite very little sympathy more dangerous diseases though accompanied with very little pain excite the highest some people faint and grow sick at the sight of a chirurgical operation and that bodily pain which is occasioned by tearing the flesh seems in them to excite the most excessive sympathy we conceive in a much more lively and distinct manner the pain that proceeds from an external cause then we do that which arises from an internal disorder i can scarce form an idea of the agonies of my neighbor when he is tortured with the gout or the stone but i have the clearest conception of what he must suffer from an incision a wound or a fracture 
The chief cause, however, why such objects produce such violent effects upon us, is their novelty. One who has been witness to a dozen dissections, and as many amputations, sees, ever after, all operations of this kind, with great indifference, and often with perfect insensibility. Though we have read or seen represented more than five hundred tragedies, we shall seldom feel so entire an abatement of our sensibility to the objects which they represent to us. In some of the Greek tragedies there is an attempt to excite compassion by the representation of the agonies of bodily pain. Philoctetes cries out and faints from the extremity of his sufferings. Hippolytus and Hercules are both introduced as expiring under the severest tortures which, it seems, even the fortitude of Hercules was incapable of supporting. In all these cases, however, it is not the pain which interests us, but some other circumstances. It is not the sore foot, but the solitude of Philoctetes which affects us, and diffuses over that charming tragedy, that romantic wildness, which is so agreeable to the imagination. The agonies of Hercules and Hippolytus are interesting only because we foresee that death is to be the consequence. If those heroes were to recover, we should think the representation of their sufferings perfectly ridiculous. What a tragedy would that be of which the distress consisted in a colic, yet no pain is more exquisite. These attempts to excite compassion by the representation of bodily pain may be regarded as among the greatest breaches of decorum of which the Greek theatre has set the example. The little sympathy which we feel with bodily pain is the foundation of the propriety of constancy and patience in enduring it. The man, who under the severest tortures allows no weakness to escape him, vents no groan, gives way to no passion, which we do not entirely enter into, commands our highest admiration. His firmness enables him to keep time with our indifference and insensibility. We admire and entirely go along with the magnanimous effort which he makes for this purpose. We approve of this behavior, and from our experience of the common weakness of human nature, we are surprised, and wonder how he should be able to act so as to deserve approbation. Approbation, mixed and animated by wonder and surprise, constitutes the sentiment which is properly called admiration, of which applause is the natural expression, as has already been observed. CHAPTER Two, Of those passions which take their origin from a particular turn or habit of the imagination. Even of the passions derived from the imagination, those which take their origin from a peculiar turn or habit it has acquired, though they may be acknowledged to be perfectly natural, are, however, but little sympathized with. The imaginations of mankind, not having acquired that particular turn, cannot enter into them, and such passions, though they may be allowed to be almost unavoidable in some part of life, are always in some measure ridiculous. This is the case that strong attachment which naturally grows up between two persons of different sexes who have long fixed their thoughts upon one another. Our imagination, not having run in the same channel with that of the lover, 
we cannot enter into the eagerness of his emotions if our friend has been injured we readily sympathize with his resentment and grow angry with the very person with whom he is angry if he has received a benefit we readily enter into his gratitude and have a very high sense of the merit of his benefactor but if he is in love though we may think his passion just as reasonable as any of the kind yet we never think ourselves bound to conceive a passion of the same kind and for the same person for whom he has conceived it the passion appears to every body but the man who feels it entirely disproportioned to the value of the object and love though it is pardoned in a certain age because we know it is natural is always laughed at because we cannot enter into it all serious and strong expressions of it appear ridiculous to a third person and though a lover may be good company to his mistress he is so to nobody else he himself is sensible of this and as long as he continues in his sober senses endeavors to treat his own passion with raillery and ridicule it is the only style in which we care to hear of it because it is the only style in which we ourselves are disposed to talk of it we grow weary of the grave pedantic and long-sentenced love of cowley and petrarca who have never done with exaggerating the violence of their attachments but the gaiety of ovid and the gallantry of horace are always agreeable but though we feel no proper sympathy with an attachment of this kind though we never approach even in imagination towards conceiving a passion for that particular person yet as we either have conceived or may be disposed to conceive passions of the same kind we readily enter into those high hopes of happiness which are proposed from its gratification as well as into that exquisite distress which is feared from its disappointment it interests us not as a passion but as a situation that gives occasion to other passions which interest us to hope to fear to distress of every kind in the same manner as in a description of a sea voyage it is not the hunger which interests us but the distress which that hunger occasions though we do not properly enter into the attachment of the lover we readily go along with those expectations of romantic happiness which he derives from it we feel how natural it is for the mind in a certain situation relaxed with indolence and fatigued with the violence of desire to long for serenity and quiet to hope to find them in the gratification of that passion which distracts it and to frame to itself the idea of that life of pastoral tranquillity and retirement which is elegant the tender and the passionate tibullus takes so much pleasure in describing a life like what the poets describe in the fortunate islands a life of friendship liberty and repose free from labor and from care and from all the turbulent passions which attend them even scenes of this kind interest us most when they are painted rather as what is hoped than as what is enjoyed the grossness of that passion which mixes with and is perhaps the foundation of love disappears when its gratification is far off and at a distance but renders the whole offensive 
when described as what is immediately possessed. The happy passion, upon this account, interests us much less than the fearful and the melancholy. We tremble for whatever can disappoint such natural and agreeable hopes, and thus enter into all the anxiety and concern and distress of the lover. Hence it is that, in some modern tragedies and romances, this passion appears so wonderfully interesting. It is not so much the love of Castilio and Monomia which attaches us in the orphan, as the distress which that love occasions. The author who should introduce two lovers in a scene of perfect security, expressing their mutual fondness for one another, would excite laughter and not sympathy. If a scene of this kind is ever admitted into a tragedy, it is always in some measure improper, and is endured not from any sympathy with the passion that is expressed in it, but from concern for the dangers and difficulties with which the audience foresee that its gratification is likely to be attended. The reserve which the laws of society oppose upon the fair sex with regard to this weakness rends it more peculiarly distressful in them, and upon that very account more deeply interesting. We are charmed with the love of Phaedra, as it is expressed in the French tragedy of that name, notwithstanding all the extravagance and guilt which attend it. That very extravagance and guilt may be said, in some measure, to recommend it to us. Her fear, her shame, her remorse, her horror, her despair, become thereby more natural and interesting. All the secondary passions, if I may be allowed to call them so, which arise from the situation of love, become necessarily more furious and violent, and it is with these secondary passions only that we can properly be said to sympathize. Of all the passions, however, which are so extravagantly disproportioned to the value of their objects, love is the only one that appears, even to the weakest minds, to have anything in it that is either graceful or agreeable. In itself, first of all, though it may be ridiculous, it is not naturally odious, and though its consequences are often fatal and dreadful, its intentions are seldom mischievous. And then, though there is little propriety in the passion itself, there is a good deal in some of those which always accompany it. There is in love a strong mixture of humanity, generosity, kindness, friendship, esteem, passions with which, of all others, for reasons which shall be explained immediately, we have the greatest propensity to sympathize, even notwithstanding we are sensible that they are, in some measure, excessive. The sympathy which we feel with them renders the passion which they accompany less disagreeable, and supports it in our imagination, notwithstanding all the vices which commonly go along with it, though in the one sex it necessarily leads to the last ruin and infamy, and though in the other, where it is apprehended to be least fatal, it is almost always attended with an incapacity for labor, a neglect of duty, a contempt of fame, and even of common reputation. Notwithstanding all this, the degree of sensibility and generosity with which it is supposed to be accompanied renders it 
to many the object of vanity, and they are fond of appearing capable of feeling what would do them no honor if they had really felt it. It is for a reason of the same kind that a certain reserve is necessary when we talk of our own friends, our own studies, our own professions. All these are objects which we cannot expect should interest our companions in the same degree in which they interest us, and it is for want of this reserve that the one half of mankind make bad company to the other. A philosopher is company to a philosopher only, a member of a club, to his own little knot of companions. End of section three. Recording by Alana Jordan in the great state of Missouri.